Today is June the 18th, 2021, and you are listening to the Friendship News Hour presented to you by Bummer Dude Media. Hola, como esta? Me llamo Frank Huerta y él es Alex Kenzie. Como esta, Alex? Bueno. Ah, bueno, indeed. <laughs> indeed, sir. How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. It's a uh, half day at work today. Just kind of kick back, relaxing a little bit. It's pretty nice here. So maybe try to get out and golf today, but doing pretty well. Yeah. Speaking of golf, today is day two of the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines here in San Diego. Mm. It's weird, man. It was like super hot this past week. Tuesday, I think it was like 90. Um, and then it's not cold, but the fog's rolling in. So it's like really dreary and gloomy out there. But uh my girlfriend and I will be out there tomorrow at the U.S. Open, and I can't wait. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, man. It's going to be cool. I hope uh, I hope all the names I want to see make the cut. I think Jordan Spieth was like four over last time I checked. I'm, I'm super interested in seeing him. And too bad the big cat's not going to be there, uh, Tiger. But um, yeah, it'll be cool, man. It'll be cool. Major Major golf in San Diego. It's about all we got. Hey, luck you guys got Tory right there, though, man. You got you get oh, to see crazy. So if you don't know about Tory Pines, I'm sure if you watched the US Open this week, they've said it like fifty thousand times. But it's a muni. It's a municipal course. It's uh, owned and operated by the city of San Diego, and they play ninety thousand rounds of golf on it every year. So it's a heavily trafficked course. Um, it's the longest course on the PGA Tour. Oh, it is. I thought the one they played. Like two courses ago when Phil won. Wasn't isn't that one of the longer courses? I heard that as well. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe maybe with the uh I don't know if Kiowa is on the circuit. I'll have to check that. I think what they meant is like of the courses they play every year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Tory Pines is the longest. Um some like seventy six hundred yards. Uh and what's crazy about Tory Pines is that it's such a straightforward course. There's no gimmicks. There's no giant hills. You just have to be deadly accurate off the tee. And when they bring it to conditions of the PGA Tour, especially the U.S. Open, I mean, the U.S. Open's a completely different beast. It's supposed to be the hardest, the hardest tournament to win every year. That rough is like three inches thick, dude. If you throw a golf ball in it, it just disappears. You're hacking out of cabbage. And um, so it's tough in that way if you're not, if you're not in the fairway, it's rough, uh, out of the rough, no pun intended. And then, um, the greens are also real slick, real fast. Um, gorgeous views set up right on the cliffs of Torrey Pines, the endless Pacific out to the West. It's just, ah, it's just beautiful. So how do they like what? three, four weeks before like a major is going to happen. Do they just shut that shit down to the public? Dude, they, so Torrey Pines is two courses, the North and the South. The South is the the main course. When they play there every year for the farmer's insurance, they play the first two rounds on the North and the South. And then the last two rounds are on the South only for the U S open. It's only the South. They shut down the North course like May 7th and the tournament started two days ago or yesterday. So they shut it down May 7th. They, they're using the North course as a driving range. So they completely, they invested like a million dollars just to renovate the, the ninth hole on the North course to be the driving range. 
and then yeah and then they renovated they brought the the fairways in so about the same time they closed the north course the south course they they didn't let people play after like two or three p.m and they brought the fairways in by like 20 percent or something like that so they made the fairways narrower and then they just grow out the rough like crazy just just grow it out like nuts and then yeah a few weeks before they just they stop all play they get it completely manicured and then they have um the tournament week and there's a lottery which your boys entered in that lets you play the south course two days after the tournament's over so the usga who runs the the us open they basically take over the course for the entirety of the tournament uh, y- you have your 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 management of tory pines that helps with the tournament but as far as like dictating conditions of the course the usga is the governing body for this tournament they keep the course for two days after the tournament's over just in case like yesterday there was a fog delay to start to start the first day if there's a rain delay or whatever and they need to go into monday and god forbid tuesday they keep the course for two days if they don't use the course for those two days then tory pines has a lottery where they they can pick your name and you can play tory pines in u.s open conditions wow yeah wow is right damn wouldn't that be something for free or do you still have to pay like greens fees no you have to pay well yeah so they have you know you have your regular rates and then if you're a if you're a resident of the city of san diego you get like highly discounted rates to play there so you could still use those rates but last year it would have been august 2020 my buddy david matrang and i went out and played tory south and we didn't know this, but the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Open Amateur Tournament, so the U.S. Open, but for amateur players, was being held at Torrey Pines, and they were all but tournament condition rough. Wow! Oh, so man. I mean, dude, like, not only did I play like shit, but like I was sore after from hacking out of the rough so much, and it's not even like the rough is hard, but it like finding your ball is like a treat. You know, like, oh, I found my ball. Like, that was, like, mm, damn, like, like amazing. And then you have to have, yeah, dude, it's just, it's just ridiculous. So it gives you a, a credible appreciation for how good professional golfers are. And it still makes them look silly. Yeah, for sure. This year, as I'm looking at the leaderboard just from day one, it's not your usual suspects, man. It's very weird, isn't it? Yeah. I mean. Who's leading right now? Bland? R. Bland? I don't know what is. Richard Bland? No way. Dick Bland, yeah. <laughs> you know who that guy is? Uh-uh. He has a really cool story. He's um, He won for the first time this year on the European tour. Okay. And he's like 41 years old. And he had spent his entire career almost winning. And at 41, he finally broke through and he won a tournament. Ah, it was like a, yeah, it was a really cool story. And now he's leading at the U.S. Open. That is why. Yeah, he's four under right now through Holy 14. Smokes. But uh, yeah, and then you got... Just, I mean, Francisco Molinari's up there, and then just a couple other guys that I just don't know. But then, you know, Brooks is up there, Xander's up there, yeah. Louis up there, Molinari. So there, there are some familiar faces, but I'd never heard of Russell Henley. He's in second place right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I know Russell Henley, but that's a weird name. I wouldn't expect that to, to be at the, the top of the U.S. Open. Yeah, Rafa Cabrera Bello. Never heard of him either. You don't know him either? Rafa Cabrera Bello? 
he has like that weird putting stance where he like he gets down on his like right knee and he extends his right leg all the way out and then his left knee's forward and he gets oh, super down on his I've crouch. Seen that guy. That's Cabrera Bale. Uh, Spieth is still four over, and Mickelson is is four over. That was just some very lucky play or very good dialed in play i think that weekend i don't i don't know if phil nicholson is a is back to his 35 40 year old form like i see some people say yeah he credited his driving that week and you know if you play golf you know if you if your driving is on if you're hitting the ball accurately off the tee everything else in your game more or less starts to fall into place and with phil nicholson i mean he's a tremendous wedge player around the greens he's great he's a great putter so um you know like i said if you're not good off the tee you're not going to have any success at Tory. So mm-hmm. if, if he's four over, it just tells me he's probably not driving the ball very well. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see, man. Go golf. That's golf with an L. Cool, uh, cool happenings <clears throat> in the news past couple days. And um, it started yesterday. Is that when that happened? Yeah. A new federal holiday has been signed um, into law with President Biden signing into law Juneteenth as a federal holiday. This has been the first time in over 40 years that we have created a federal holiday and it is now um, has the same status as Memorial Day, Independence Day, Veterans Day, MLK Day, uh, and any other federal holiday. So we wanted to take some time with this because that's a big deal, a federal holiday. I mean, that's that's giant. doesn't happen all the time, obviously. And, um, I don't know about you, man, but I didn't know about Juneteenth or what it was probably till like two, maybe three years ago. Oh, really? Yeah. I I had not, I mean, I may have learned about it in school, but it wasn't something that was like prominent in my mind. Yeah. They didn't teach us about it in school, but it it happens to be my sister's birthday. So I've just kind of, Ah, you know, for a long time, just kind of associated the two. Oh, happy birthday jazz tomorrow yeah she'll be 18 dude it's insane damn <laughs> yeah that's crazy um so yeah if you don't know what it is we will go through a little bit about the history and why we celebrate it um in short it marks the very end of slavery in america with the last remaining slaves learning that they are freed persons um, and why it's important and why it's a big deal and why we celebrate it is because it actually happened two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. So the Emancipation Proclamation was an executive order signed by Abraham Lincoln that declared all persons held as slaves would be free, right? So um, that happened two years later, April 1865, uh, Robert E. Lee surrendered to um, the Union in Virginia, which marked the end of the Civil War. So even after the Emancipation Proclamation, America was still at war, meaning those in the South were not adhering to the federal laws brought down by Abraham Lincoln because they were still in the process of succeeding. Civil War ended April 1865. Later that year in December, uh, the 13th Amendment was ratified, enshrining a ban on slavery into the Constitution. So then it became a constitutional law that slavery was banned in America. But that news, either by way of holding out as a slave owner, or just because it was 
1865 and news doesn't travel tremendously fast, that news didn't reach every far reaching corner of the South until, um, June 19th, 1865, when the last known slaves held in Galveston, Texas were alerted that they were free. And thus we celebrate Juneteenth. Texas was the first state to celebrate it too, which is pretty cool. Oh, really? Yeah. In 1865. Yeah, yeah, I understood it to be like a Texas thing. Wasn't it like a Texas only kind of thing? Like it was, they were the ones that more or less made it what it was. Yeah, I, yeah, I think they were just like the first ones to formally celebrate it, and then from there it grew. But it's definitely, I mean, even like you were saying, you didn't know what it was the last two years. In the last, like I would say, last five, even ten years, like it's really kind of just come onto the map. I feel like with with people talking about it. Like, I, I don't remember when I was like a young kid, it ever being mentioned, you know, like, I mean, my, my sister's 18. And even then, like, I don't think I started associating the two until maybe like 10, 12 years ago. So I, I feel like it's just something that like, as the world has started to change, has come more to the forefront and as something that we should celebrate, because it's like a, a great thing in our nation's history that that should be celebrated. We learned about the Emancipation Proclamation. We learned about the end of slavery. We learned about um, the 13th Amendment and all that. Um, but, you know, for, for historical significance, this was more or less the day when we all officially were recognized as one people. Now, obviously, it has taken time to make to have that idea come to fruition in the mainstream there was obviously struggle afterwards but you know while it does celebrate the end of slavery for the last known slaves in the south i think it also marks a turning point in what is hopefully a continuing legacy of unity um and the one thing that i'm slightly apprehensive about is that well first of all this was a unanimous decision from all from all uh, congressmen and all senators and I'm always leery when things are like a hundred percent yes because it's like mm, there's something going on there I hope this isn't just like a uh, like posturing you know like oh look what we've done kind of thing. I, 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 I want to hope and believe that it's done in good faith, that this is something that we bipartisanly came together for. I mean, I, I couldn't see why you would have an issue with it or why you wouldn't vote for it. But what I, what I'm, my hope is that it's not just like a, a grandstanding thing and that it's, you know, that, that there's effort to be made to really drive home the significance of it. And it's not just like another day off. You know what I mean? No, for sure. I, I think that's what it is. I mean, because even this is not new legislation. Like it's been on the floor for a few years now. And even up until last year, uh, Senator Ron Johnson uh, from Wisconsin, he openly opposed doing this. Um, oh, really? Yeah. He They were more citing like uh, money and like putting it all together to add a new federal holiday is, is not worth it. Like he, he not really 
saying that like the holiday, what it means is stupid, but just saying like the things that would have to go into place and people missing days of work, you know, and missing that paycheck, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, but even he said like he, he was not going to raise an objection to it and he voted for mm-hmm. it too. So, you know, I, I don't know if there was more going on in his case where he was against it and I'm sure he had some other support, but it, it seems like it's, it's something that should be definitely celebrated. I, I, I would hope that there's not something, some, like you're saying, grandstanding or anything like that going on. I think it's just like with the best intentions of something that should be a holiday as we honor people like Martin Luther King and, you know, our veterans and, you know, all these different holidays that we have. Like, I, I think that it falls right in line with, with all that stuff. I, I just, um, you know, culturally, I think it's a good thing, right. To, to have a, a, a day of recognition for something like this, where it's like, you know, this, this is the mark of, of us turning a page. It's a good thing to celebrate. Um, I'm just waiting for like target to start selling dashikis and shit. You know what I mean? Like, oh, just like yeah. making it, you know, like, a, a commercially viable holiday as well. Um, so I don't know, celebrate how you will. I, I think it's a great thing. Um, I'm happy that going forward, you know, our children and, 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 and children that are going to be brought up from this point on are, are going to have this, this day of remembrance every year. And they're going to know that, you know, there was efforts being been made for unity. And here's a day where we can mark, where we can say, Hey, the unification of Americans is important. And we have actually created a day to remember that it is possible. And this is the day that it happened. And I, and I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. And companies, uh, like Nike, Twitter, Google, General Motors, they've all come on to say that they are, they are also going to make Juneteenth a paid holiday. Um, which is, is, is awesome. Cause like, just cause it's a federal holiday doesn't mean like anything other than really like schools and banks and, and a couple other like, uh, kind of places would, would celebrate it or would give you like the day off. So, mm. you know, a lot of jobs may still be open, but like to see big companies like Nike, Google say like, this is going to be a paid holiday. I think that kind of sets the trend for a lot of other businesses to say like, okay, this should be, this should be on the par with Memorial day, labor day kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, are there any other federal holidays that we don't take off yeah like columbus day is that a federal holiday i'm pretty sure it is let me see is it list of federal holidays let's go to the googles i always put them in like federal holidays and bank holidays what days are we all off and what days are the banks off (laughs) right right so uh the federal holidays are new year's day martin luther king jr day uh president's day memorial day juneteenth independence day labor day columbus day veterans day thanksgiving and christmas yep Veterans Day, that's the other one. Okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like some of those, like I know, uh, at least for me, I don't get Martin Luther King Jr. Day off. I don't get President's Day off. I don't get Columbus Days off. Don't think I get Veterans Day off either, but maybe. Yeah, I know I get, I get President's Day and I get Martin Luther King Day. I don't get Veterans Day and I don't get Columbus Day. So I don't know. But like also, I know like, so when I worked at Costco, Costco was open during on Martin Luther King day, but they gave you like a floating holiday to be used like within a month of it. So it's like, here's the day off, but we can't give you that day off because we're open. So 
use this day off and at some point, um, which would be a good move here. You know, what's the point of having the holiday? Yeah. If you're not going to celebrate it and recognize it. So and it's also important. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it's cool to think, not cool to think. It's very interesting to think about what these last slaves were thinking when they learned, you know, two years after the fact, like, holy shit, it's been two years. You know, uh, that's another little wrinkle in here. It's like, wow, you know, two years and it, it took two years from the Emancipation Proclamation for for the last of of these slaves to be more or less set free. News traveled slow, man. Like we, we learned in that essay, like most of the Americans didn't know that the Holocaust was really going on and that like there was these huge concentration camps set up to kill people, which is insane to me. Because I was thinking more on that article and, and, and he's saying like we the screamers and, and the author was saying that like we're yelling, we're trying to tell the world and no one's believing us. That was so weird to me because like the world is against Nazi Germany and what they're doing. So like that's just like fuel for like your war canon. Like you would want that to be widely distributed so that right. people are like, yeah, right. fuck those guys. Let's go kill them. Let's go beat them. And what's interesting about that is the reasons that they cited for not believing in the atrocities of Nazi Germany while they were going on was that they contributed it to propaganda. Right. And which is interesting because I always thought about that era in American history as being the most susceptible to propaganda. And maybe they were, but that, that poll that was stated in the essay saying nine out of 10 Americans did not believe in the atrocities currently being, um, committed by by Nazi Germany and they they said that it was more or less just propaganda thinking well that's almost kind of good in a way you know because you don't want to be susceptible as a as a nation to propaganda the reason for propaganda especially during wars is to dehumanize the enemy right like if you looked at propaganda that we put out against the Japanese people during that time it's incredibly insensitive and racist and the reason was for that is because we had to go and kill them because if not they were going to kill us so the best way to do that is to dehumanize that that other people i think you saw when we went to war in iraq and afghanistan there was a big pushback against the hatred or perceived discrimination against muslim people in america because of the fact that we were fighting a war against the very same people overseas so to hear that it's almost like a catch 22 for me where it's like well at one and one end i i don't want the population of this country to be so soft headed and susceptible to the propaganda of the war machine. At the same time, if somebody's screaming from the rooftops that, um, you know, Hey, uh, slavery is over. <laughs> you need to free these people. Nah, whatever. That's propaganda. You're just, you're just selling me a bill of lies. You know what I'm saying? No, nah, I don't know that, that that's how it went. It could have been a whole lot more insidious than that, but it, that that is an incredibly incredibly interesting perspective on on how we how we view historical atrocities in the present day when they're occurring. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, that made me look into what you're saying was going on in China too, because I I didn't fully realize the scope of that, and that's pretty fucking insane that that's happening right now. Oh, with the Uyghurs, yeah. Yeah, it's happening right now. And we all know about it. The people that need to know about it, know about it. And what are we doing about it? Right, right. You, some might say we can't because of the strength of China or whatever. But I mean, at, at that point, you're just making a decision 
to stand on the wrong side of history for whatever your reasons are justified or not. Try telling that to the people being killed right now. I mean, it's, it's, it's sick. Two other pretty big decisions were made yesterday, actually, uh, right here in the U.S. of A. Um, with our very own Supreme Court that I, I thought were pretty interesting. Wanted to bring them up here. Um, yesterday, they made two larger decisions. The first uh, having to do with uh, Obamacare, otherwise known as the Affordable Care Act. And they upheld the act for the third time uh, yesterday leaving in place like pretty much most of the stuff that Obama put into place for like the healthcare system mm-hmm. um, that goes all the way back to 2010, I believe. Um, and the vote passed in, in the Supreme court 72, uh, which kind of surprised me because it's more of like a conservative, you know, Supreme court these days for sure. Um, but all the chief, like the justices, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts was behind it, and then he was supported by Clarence Thomas, Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. The two that opposed it were Samuel Alito and Neil Gorish, um, both conservatives. But it, it looks, you know, it, on the surface, like it's always been this hotly contested thing. Would it sounds like is is really good um i know it helps out a lot of people but a lot of people are like really against this whole standardized healthcare idea and that it kills the free market world of what healthcare is so it's it's i mean it's no news to anyone this has been highly debated for years now yeah the the key issue surrounding the the reason that it was even brought to the supreme court was that when it first was rolled out there was a penalty for not having insurance. So like there's a penalty for you not carrying car insurance, right? It's the law. You have to have car insurance if you drive a car. They made the same thing happen with healthcare where they were like, okay, it's the law. You have to have healthcare. So there was a penalty for it. They reduced the penalty to zero, essentially saying it's the law and there's a penalty for it. And the penalties that we charge is zero dollars. Like that was the law. And the argument was that if it's the law that you have to have insurance and there's a penalty and the penalty is zero, then basically you've just counter counteracted your own healthcare law and it should not be law. And because there's no, and this is a legal term, injury, injury is a, broader legal term doesn't mean like getting injured bodily. It means like injured in the eyes of the law. Were you injured by this? And because there was no experience injury from the $0 penalty, that it wasn't a viable argument to bring to the Supreme Court. They shot it down on that basis alone. So there wasn't really any argument for or against, should we have this? Should we, should we not? It was that argument, but it was fought using this one aspect of it. And the legal, the legal argument was just not, it wasn't viable. You have to come with, you have to come correct when you're, when you're arguing against the Supreme court and it was just a weak argument. So they said, no, get out of here. So like you said, it's the third time that this has happened. It's most likely not going to go anywhere. Isn't it refreshing though, to see like 
these judges who definitely have like their political alliances, what what have you, like do their fucking job though, and not stick to party alliances or any kind of bias that they may have and like actually be a sure. judge and make like an impartial decision. I, I think that's so refreshing sure. to see, man. Like, and when you were gone, like how Senator, like Joe Manchin is like standing up to like the whole democratic party. It's just refreshing to see people like do what they're there to do and not just like go along with the wave that they're a part of. I've always had more faith in the Supreme court to do that than any politician. And that's why I don't like the politic politicalization of the Supreme court because at the end of the day, they are beholden to the Constitution. And because of that, they have a higher ideal. They they have a barrier. that Their, their constraints are the Constitution. And not saying that, well, I don't know. Certainly you could have a slant and you could work within those boundaries to twist and turn and, and make something happen more along the ways that you are affiliated, but I, I've always had respect for Supreme Court justices because like this right here, like they know that this is a weak legal argument. It was brought to them as a weak legal argument. And regardless of how they feel about this particular law and, and, and what it means to the country as a whole, they're not interjecting that into their decision. They're saying your legal argument is weak. It sucks. Get that shit out of here. And it, like you said, it's, it is super, super refreshing to see. And I, I'm not a huge fan of, of Obamacare. I think it likes to straddle the, the middle and you're either going to have universal health care or you're, or you're not. And this is just a, maybe paving the way towards it. Um, but my personal opinions aside, your personal opinions aside, under the, under the constitution, this law that was passed is still constitutional and that's what they, that's what they ruled. So one, one, one major decision definitely you could say went, uh, in the Democrats favor, but the other decision that they made yesterday, which, uh, is just as in biggest scope, honestly, it, it surprised me more though, um, was that they, a unanimous decision was made that a Catholic foster care agency in Philadelphia is may turn away gay and lesbian couples as clients, uh, basically citing their religious freedom to do this. Um, the, I, I guess like, it makes sense to me that, that this would get passed. Cause like religious freedom is, is something that's been in our constitution since like, day one. Um, it make and, and, you know, by following the law, following that, like, it, I guess these, these places should be able to do that. Um, in my opinion, it sucks that like kids' lives are affected by that bias, but I mean they're being provided for and taking care of them, so they they ultimately get to make that decision. What surprised me is that this was a unanimous decision uh, that three, and like you said, maybe it's not good when they politicize these justices because they're there to do their job, but three you know Democratic, more liberal leaning judge justices all voted in favor of this which is equally as refreshing to see people follow the constitution and do their job um, and, and make, make a decision. So this was a, so like the other, the Supreme court ruling on um, Obamacare was about there being uh, an injury to 
bring forth to the court saying this is a problem because it's injured somebody. I said, no, there's, that means nothing. There's no constitutional precedent. Everything that happens in our legal system, in our British common law legal system, why, which is why it is still to this day, the very best legal system that has ever been created is that it's all based on precedent. So this one case was brought forth and was argued under the first amendment. They used the Supreme court used a case from 1990 called the employment division versus Smith that finds no constitutional problem. If religious exercise is curbed by a law that generally applies to everyone, right? This is more along the lines of the same Supreme court case in Colorado where a cake uh, a, a bake, a bakery refused to make a cake for a same sex marriage. They just said they didn't want to do it. And that took the, all the way to the Supreme court and Supreme court ruled in favor of the bakery, obviously because of the first amendment. And, um, the, the chief justice on the Supreme court, justice, uh, Roberts, um, said that the, Human Services Division in Philadelphia can, has the ability to grant exemptions to these organizations that foster children and that non, his words were non-discrimination requirement couldn't be considered generally applicable and you're able to use religious hardship as a, a way to say, I can't do this, this, and that. And because it would impose a religious hardship because it goes against their religion, then it would have violated the first amendment. Now, without the whole legal jargon around this, I don't necessarily have a giant problem with it. One, because it's been shown that not one LGBT um, parent has gone to this Catholic organization in search of a foster kid, right? So it hasn't really happened. It was just denied by Philadelphia and the Supreme Court says, no, you can't do that. You have to allow them this exemption. Two, this social service agency, Catholic social service agency in Philadelphia has been doing this for very, 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 very long time. They've helped out a ton of children and there's like 27 other agencies in Philadelphia where in which you can go. So while it doesn't send a great message that you can discriminate against LGBT people because your religion does not approve of same-sex marriage, that's not a tremendous message. But it's a free country. You don't have to go to a Catholic social service agency and especially and if there are 27 other options in the city for you to me doesn't really tilt the scales one way or another for sure yeah i guess to me it's just like I, by the law get it on board makes sense but like the bigger problem is like why is that such an issue in within the religion like you couldn't 
I don't think at least that you could have a restaurant that won't serve like black people that won't serve Muslim people. I, I don't think you can do that anymore or have like a separate water fountain for people. I, I, I think that's outlawed. Right. But like when, then when you bring in, well, it's their religion. So it's, I mean, what is any different between a religion and between a racist person believing that you know, a white person believing that black people are less than them? Like that's at the end of the day, that's just a belief. That's, that's no, like you're categorizing it religiously but if the KKK wanted to start their own religion, would they then be able to, to go across the country and, and set up restaurants and different businesses that like wouldn't allow black people to come in and be served, yada, yada? Like, Probably. It's just, that's insane to me that religion is, like that, that it's, it's a difference to me. And, and then the deeper problem is like, why is that such a problem with, with that religion then? Like, could two dads or could two moms not love a kid as much as a mom and a dad would? Yeah, you know, the the... Theory and the answer is no. Um, the, the theory is that in the Bible there are things that are said that may or may not explicitly go against being same-sex marriage, right? So one of the things that is said in the Bible, which is some of the basis for all of these religions' doctrines to not allow for same-sex marriage, is that if there is something that occurs in nature then let it occur in your home. If there is something that does not occur in nature, do not let it occur in your home. And that has been taken to to be interpreted as because and this is this is their thought process, not mine. Because homosexuality doesn't exist in nature, it should not exist in your home. Well, that's false. There's mm-hmm countless examples of homosexuality occurring in nature. So that's one of the things. But the official doctrine of the Catholic Church on same-sex marriage is that it is not a sin to be gay. It is not a sin to be attracted to a person of the same sex as you. But it is a sin to act upon that urge, right? So it's ridiculous. By way of you being homosexual, you are sinning if you're acting upon it. Well, if you're married, well, then you're obviously acting upon it because you've entered in a, in a, in a union with this other person. So that is where the official uh, bridge meets the road, if you will, when it comes to Christianity, homosexuality, and the acceptance of them, uh, of them within it. And we talked about this a few weeks ago about the Catholic Church. You know, they have the ability to discriminate here because of the institution that they are. You said if the KKK wanted to, could they go open a restaurant and discriminate against black people because of their religion? The answer is yes. The question is, would anybody allow them to do it? Would the city that they're in allow them to open up that restaurant? Uh, would the state allow them to open up that restaurant? Would they use their power to shut that down? The answer is probably yes, right? I don't know anywhere in America that would allow something like that, that blatantly racist to happen. But because the institution of the Catholic Church so large and ingrained in our in our world, in the globe, that they they're not going anywhere. We can't eradicate them. Therefore, because there are this entity that exists so prevalently in our in our culture, then they have to be recognized as the religious institute that they are, and the Supreme Court has to recognize that legally. But isn't that scary that the highest court in our land is unanimously approving a hate crime? 
for a religious organization. It is a hate crime. It is to, to say that you guys can't come in here and like foster a kid and save a kid's life because you're gay or otherwise. Like, what does that have to, that, that's a, that's just like saying you can't come in here because you're black. That's a hate crime. It's discrimination. You can't come into this restaurant. But it's not, I, I, I wouldn't say it's a hate crime because I don't, there's not a crime. It's discrimination and it's discrimination that is protected under, um, the first amendment because the first amendment protects religious freedoms and it's discrimination is discrimination. Nonetheless, legal or not legally approved or not, it it is discrimination. But if you don't have a legal argument against it, because what you're saying is like, you're going up against the first amendment. I mean, you got to have, really have something for the Supreme court to rule against the first amendment. I don't particularly like the discrimination of anybody. And in this case, same sex couples being discriminated against being able to foster a kid through this agency. I'm not in agreement with that. I am a hundred percent in agreement with this Supreme court ruling in favor of the first amendment, because that is more important in the eyes of, uh, of the Supreme court and the constitution and the country as a whole, than what it means for this particular agency and these particular parents who don't have the ability to go to this Catholic service, but also never try to in the past either. Yeah. There's, there's other options. This isn't the only adoption agency in the whole city. Like you said, there's 20 some other ones. Yeah. Right. And if you're, I mean, like, you know, if you're a same sex couple, why, if you had options and you do, why would you choose? I'm not saying anybody did, but why would you choose this in the first place? You know that you're not accepted there. I don't think that they're actively trying to eradicate same sex couples from the earth. I don't think that their goal is to, is to eradicate homosexuality from our culture Probably it's their goal to eradicate homosexuality from their culture, and you're in a free country. They're going out of their way to not work with them, though. <laughs> they're not like doing the whole love your neighbor as thyself thing here. Like they're going out of their way and citing their religion as the reason to do so, but they're going out of their way to not love thy neighbor as thyself. Yeah, it's a contradiction. It, well, certainly is a contradiction, and it, it's 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 principled to the point where it is a part of that institution. It's not an idea. It's not a belief. It is, it is that it is that. And for them to say, Oh yeah, we want to begin to accept same sex couples as foster parents. That would mean the active dismantling of that principle of this institution. That's never going to happen. It's never going to happen so I say steer clear of it. Let them be who they are as long as they're not infringing on your rights. And they're not, I don't think they are. I really don't think that they're infringing on anybody's rights. I don't think they're really aggressively being assholes. They're being principled and those principles suck, but it's where we're at. I mean, that's, that's the country we live in. And like I said, you have options. So don't let these people ruin your day. Go foster somebody who wants you to be the parents of tons of kids that need the help. Okay. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. 
We are going to talk about milk. Oh, yes. Milk is gross. Do you like milk? Well, I mean, I don't not enjoy the taste of it. Once I've looked into it like the past few years and, and learned about the process of it, it has disgusted me and I have stopped drinking it. Gross and dirty and pus filled. and um, But... I still enjoy ice cream and I still eat cheese. Yeah. So well, yeah, those have milk in them. So ice cream's great. Dairy is not like, I'm not like super against dairy. I love butter, cheese and yogurt and all that. Um, and I liked milk as a kid. I, I, I don't like milk now. I think it's very well documented that after a certain age in our adolescence through our teen years, we develop a, uh, uh, intolerance for milk for dairy really in general but for milk especially if i had a, a glass of milk right now i'd feel like shit um and i remember hearing about milk and the history of it and just thinking wow what a freaking what a crazy crazy history because it's still around today and i think it deserves some time so quickly we are going to go through the history of milk in our country and it starts in um, the East coast way back in like the 1850s. Right. And cows are brought over to the United States and they're pretty much part of everyday life. And every household has a cow where they get milk and cheese and they, you know, they are able to sustain with a cow. It's actually a, it's actually an incredible animal when you think about how much sustenance it brings to us. Um, as cities started to become a thing, the land for cows to roam around and graze began to dissipate in a big, big way. And so in order for the masses to get their demand of milk, there needed to be production outside of the city for milk. And that came in the form of grain distilleries because these grain distilleries saw the demand for milk and they saw, oh, well, well, we'll just, you know, start bottling milk. Right. Um, and they were feeding them on the waste that was produced by distilling grain. Right. So it's like the grain and the water and whatever they put into it, that's boiled and all that is thrown away and you get the remainder of that, you distill that and you age it, whatever, and then you get your, your spirit, your liquor. So that slop was fed to these cows and it made them incredibly diseased. And they, um, they had tuberculosis in their systems that went into their milk and people were drinking it and getting incredibly sick and diseased and tuberculosis was a big thing. And it was just, it was all this big gross stuff. So anyway, um, a French chemist by the name of Louis Pasteur, um, helped develop the idea of germs and he created a process called pasteurization where the liquids were rapidly heated and then cooled, which killed a lot of the organism inside of the milk, rendering it safe. So milk survives. Milk begins to have a new uh, marketing scheme. People are really into milk again. Before it was killing people. Now. And what year was that? He died in 1895. We'll say 1880. I don't know. Eight, in, the, okay. in the mid to late 1800s. Because what's insane to me, though, is that there's there's like archaeological evidence that goes back to like 4,000, 3,000 BC 
like with the Sumerians mm-hmm. and uh, like in Neolithic Britain that show that they were already doing this. Like they were milking dairy cows and, and using it for milk and butter and things like that. So like it was being drank unpasteurized for like 3,000 years plus. Yeah. 4,000 years with, plus. <laughs> with, <laughs> that's, I that's know. Insane. With all the disease and all the shit that's in it. <laughs> I know. But it's sustenance, right? I mean, you didn't have the option back then. So anyway. Sure. We'll fast forward. There's a couple skirmishes and, you know, milk is a very uh, lucrative business. So, you know, with that comes power struggles and murder and all this kind of stuff. So that that's all going down. Then we get into World War II. It's 1917. And Woodrow Wilson makes the decision to enter the United States into the war. We send our boys out to Europe and we need to start cranking that big old war machine. And part of that war machine is going to be milk. And what we started to do was it, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when the government subsidized, we began to subsidize milk and send it in canned and powdered form to soldiers overseas. And the production was just rampant dude they were just sending it off gotta you know gotta get our boys back home we need to sustain them here's some milk the war ends and all these farmers have this giant surplus of milk and they need something to do with it so they begin to sell it everywhere and the price of milk drops to uh, prices that have never been seen before So the government's like, well, we can let these farmers fail or we can do something to help them. And in the spirit of good intentions, they did something to help them. Um, And it first began with a small federal milk program in Chicago, Illinois, June 4th, 1940, where 15 elementary schools with a total of about 13,000 kids were selected to receive milk for low or no pay. It was one cent for half a pint. And if you couldn't pay for it, you were just given the milk for free. So boom, this started America's milk machine, if you will, because they kept subsidizing the milk industry and because the, the production of milk was so high, they needed to continue to find places to, to put it. So they began to market milk to the public. I'm reading from a infograph in the 1940s um, where they're saying that milk is beneficial for good teeth and vitality, endurance, and strong bones. There's a, a woman drinking a glass of milk and it says milk for summer thirst. <laughs> Gross. So anyway, in the 1940s, they began to market milk as a health food. And in 1946, Harry Truman signed into law the National School Lunch Act. And it was designed to provide lunches to children going to school, obviously, in the name. And it mandated that each lunch include between one half and two pints of whole milk. We know today that that is an outrageous proposition. I mean, it's an incredibly calorie-dense drink to begin with. And that's so much milk to just be forcing onto our children. There was no 
scientific evidence or backing on this. We just said, hey, we're going to throw milk onto our children. So um, in 19, we'll fast forward to 1966. This has been going on now for about 20 years. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson um, authorized the special milk program as part of the Child Nutrition Act in 1966, and it provided milk then for free of charge to uh, all the children that don't participate in the federal nutrition service program. Um, So this was more like low free lunches for low income uh, people. And then um, the dairy act of 1983 created the national dairy board. So now when you hear the words big milk, this is what we're talking about. There's an actual dairy board for milk. Still nothing that says that it's good for us. There's literally nothing that says that we should all be drinking milk, but they needed to reduce the surpluses because they're continuing to subsidize the goddamn milk. They kept paying for the milk that we didn't need. Right. Um, and so this goes on, this goes on, um, 1992. Now this is another thing that we should spend an entire day talking about. And that is the food pyramid. The first USDA food pyramid is released, right? And in it, it describes what makes up a good balanced meal or things that we should be eating. And it's a ridiculous proposition. It says the things that we should be eating the most of is bread and grain, which is fucking insane. All carbs. And it recommended two to three servings of milk a day. This is the United States uh, uh, Drug Administration, Food and Drug Administration? USDA. The United States Department of fucking Agriculture is saying that we need to drink two, three milks a day, and the majority of our servings of calories should be coming from bread, bread and grain. Outrageous. I mean, just so ridiculously outrageous. The very next year started the Got Milk campaign. Everybody remembers the Got Milk campaign. What do you think of when you think of the Got Milk campaign? Uh, dude, Backstreet Boys had a poster uh, that was hilarious. I, I just think of those milk stashes, milk man, stashes over right? everybody. I think even Michael Jordan did one. Michael Jordan definitely had one. Do you remember that commercial where uh, the the mom was asking the kids to drink their milk? And the kid was like, well, Mr. Johnson doesn't drink his milk. He's fine. And it cuts to this old man outside trying to pick up a wheelbarrow and his arms fall off as he's trying to pick up the wheelbarrow and <laughs> no. they start chugging the milk. Do you remember this commercial? No. Oh my God. It's what outrageous. Yeah. So there's a, a, a campaign because there's still a giant excess of milk. Um, and so they start this campaign, got milk. It's incredibly successful. Um, it's considered one of the most successful campaigns in history of anything, literally anything. And they spend $150 million a year to support it. Um, and you've, you've heard of government cheese. Yeah. Okay. So all this milk is being produced. They're advertising the milk, which is producing more milk and milk does not have a great shelf life. So what do they do? They take this nearly rotten milk and they create cheese and they store it in fucking bunkers and they give it to people who are low income or that need, uh, help buying groceries and food. We're not government cheese. That's where government cheese comes from. Comes from our ineptitude. It comes from our ridiculous production of milk. Um, 
1993, there is uh, artificial bovine growth hormone, or you've seen these these letters, these acronyms all over the place, RBST, RBH, RBGH, BGH, and they're hormones that allow for more production of, of cattle in worse conditions, essentially. Um, it's approved by the Food and Fucking Drug Administration, and they begin to use it. Just a year later, they start protesting this. They know, they know, like every like people who are in the know are like, we should not be giving this to cows that are actually giving us food. Um, and uh, there's a study in 1997 that comes out of Harvard, and it says that there uh it was a study that investigated whether higher intakes of milk or other calcium foods um during adulthood could re- reduce the risk of osteoporosis or you know the, the the relative weakening of your bones and it concluded that a high intake of milk did not reduce the incidence of osteoporosis and bone related or related bone fractures so this study is saying Whoa, 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 pump the brakes. We're, we're, we're feeding milk to the population like, like it's going out of style. And it's not doing any good. There's no real evidence that milk is good for you. Um, and so coming into the 2000s, uh, PETA files a lawsuit for false advertising for the California Milk Board. Do you remember uh, Happy Cheese comes from? Happy Cows. Happy cows and happy cows come from California. Um, well, they they start a lawsuit. Like, listen, this is completely false. Look at the incredibly disgusting conditions that these cows in California are in. Um, and in 2004, the government continues and they start a um, uh, an initiative to market milk and dairy as a way to lose weight. Like you can't make this shit up. They're literally saying eat milk, cheese, and yogurt every day for stronger bones. And you can, uh, burn more fat and lose weight. That is literally their messaging. And, uh, it continues. Um, where are we at? Four years after they came out with that, initiative for weight loss, they walk it back in 2007 and, um, from help from the physicians committee for responsible medicine and the federal trade commission, they both put a letter together saying you guys are completely misleading the public. It does not, there is no research that you can get stronger bones from dairy consumption. Definitely no research. You can lose any weight from, from dairy consumption. And, um, Do I have anything more on it? Um, Raw milk is, I guess, as a, as we know, as we we put out in the the beginning of the segment, that if you don't pasteurize milk, it's incredibly dangerous. It could carry a bunch of diseases. So there's been a big crackdown on raw milk and um, got milk advertising campaign was stopped in 2014 and um in 2015 there was a substantial decrease of dairy milk as non-dairy alternatives begin to rise 
and um, really nothing has changed since then. I think the um, I think the milk consumption of America has shifted to your almond milks, your oat milks, your soy milks, your what have you. So much so that January of last year, the two largest American dairy companies filed for bankruptcy. Good. I mean, it's taken over over a hundred years to to stop this giant milk machine. But um, so there's your history on milk. I, I hope that you reconsider your consumption of it if you don't need it. It's not good for you. You usually can't digest it. I don't think there's anything really wrong about drinking milk. Um, I just think the history of it is fascinating. Um, and it shows the lengths of, of where our government will go to, you know, I think it shows the strength of a lobby. You know, there's no way that this happens without a giant, huge lobby of milk for dairy farmers and for people who are afraid of losing their jobs. Instead of telling the truth, they will mislead you and they will push milk on your children in the, in, in the form of two pints a day. Yeah. I do. Growing up with that got milk campaign, it got my mom for sure, man. We were every night with dinner. It was a glass of milk every single night. Like it's so, it, it's so gross to me now to think about it, but I drank so much milk as a kid. And my brother up until like two weeks ago, Still just drank milk, just straight up on top of still eating ice cream and, and cheese and yogurt, all these other things. But like he would, he finally was talking to his doctor and his doctor was like, you got to cut out of the dairy. So he finally is switching. But that dude has been chugging glasses of milk for 20, 29 years now. It's crazy. That's wild. I'll always remember as a kid sitting down to dinner at a friend's house and they served milk with spaghetti and oh. I thought it was the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. I go, There's no cookies or chocolate around. It's the only thing milk goes good with or cereal. Oh, so you didn't really drink it that often as a kid then? Nah, dude, never drank milk like that, man. I never did. I always, I liked it, you know, it was, but I never drank it casually. It always had to be like, if I had chocolate around, milk was fantastic. If I had cookies around, milk was fantastic. But, and I had cereal too. But I could never just like, hmm, I'm thirsty. I'm going to go have a glass of milk. Like that never was occurred to me almost ever. I mean, chocolate milk, I like things like that. Um, and it's, I like milk for cooking. I think that there's very few substitutes that work as well as the richness and creaminess of milk. But like to just sit and have a glass of it. Ugh, no, I never liked it. I never liked the consistency of it. I never thought something creamy and thick like that was refreshing. I always thought it was like heavy and, and a, something that needed a counterpart. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. As I've, I, when I moved here, uh, my now wife basically introduced me to almond milk. And since then I have for everything, man, smoothies. I don't ever really like drink a thing of it, but like, you know, put in my smoothies and my oatmeal cereal, anything like that. It's, it's almond milk, but still, I don't like eat cheese all the time, but I, I don't see myself ever like stopping cheese, which is still dairy from a cow. So, right. No, no, I love ice cream and cheese is fantastic. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine a, I'm, I'm happy. I don't have the same reaction to cheese as I do with like milk. You know, my body doesn't reject it in the same way. And I love that because cheese is the best. So anyway, man, we are, uh, up against it here. Um, we are, before we go, I would like to shout out our friends, our sponsors over at gun barrel coffee. Um, 
They maintain, we maintain, that drinking a good smooth cup of coffee is a treat all by itself, but when it helps American heroes like veterans and first responders, it is that much better. Gun Barrel Coffee is proud to donate $1 from every single item purchased to veterans and first responder charities all across our great country. Tons of different brews and blends. The, the Moab, which is like the mother of all beans, their, their high caffeine brew. Uh, they got a double dark roast called the Battleship. CBD infused blend called the Medic. Uh, they even now have a hot sauce called the Big Guns. All delicioso. They offer 14 different blends and roasts, which you can get for any coffee drinker in your life. Whole bean, ground, or single serve K-Cups. Right now, as a friend of our ship, you can use the code FNH10 to save 10% at checkout when you buy their coffee at gunbarrelcoffee.com. Gunbarrel Coffee. Damn good coffee. Damn good cause. That's something I'm not able to switch is, is heavy cream in coffee. I don't like almond milk and coffee. I think it tastes. I think it makes it taste gross. I drink it black, baby. I like I it black too. But no you know, every cream, now and then, no sugar. You get a super intense dark roast and just a tiny little cream, a little spoon of sugar. Ah, mwah. incredible. Anyways, <laughs> um, if uh, you'd like to reach out to us and uh, you're a huge fan of milk and you want to push back on what we were talking about. Um, please feel free to reach out to us. We love any and all comments. You can reach us at uh, FriendshipNH on Twitter, at FriendshipNewsHour on Instagram, and you can email us at BummerDude.media at gmail.com. That's BummerDude.media at gmail.com. I will see you on Monday, sir. Have a good uh, weekend, man. Enjoy the U.S. Open.